Thank you. Yes, please read from God's Word. We have three sections from God's Word to read today. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 through 18. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21. Then Acts chapter 2, 1 through 8. Exodus 19, 16 through 18. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the, the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as, oh, oh there we go. That's 18, and then Exodus 20, 18 through 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for the for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood off far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like the mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? This is the word of God. You may be seated. Pentecost Sunday this year is June 5th. We are a Pentecostal church, and we are excited for this. We, uh, you know, we all know all about Pentecost, or do we? Um, last week, I preached a message on what Pentecost is about. It's about the harvest. And I was speaking with one of your board members afterwards, and I was, um, I don't know if I even told him this, but that was one of the things I said in my message last week was something the, the Holy Spirit revealed to me through the scripture before I came up. It wasn't really in my notes. And that was, if you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues, but you're not actively engaged in evangelism, then what is the purpose for you to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? And I've been thinking about this all this week, too, because it's something that challenges me, because I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. I speak in tongues, absolutely. And I'm thinking, okay, am I this dynamo for the faith like I've always been, or do I need to, I need to realign myself with the purposes of God when it comes to Pentecost? Because Pentecost is not, it is not a theater for people to look at. 
I remember me and my, me and my wife, we went to this uh, church, a much bigger church, and this was during the 2008 election. If you remember, Sarah Palin was the running mate, and the local news station found out she had gone to an Assembly God church once upon a time. So we're going to this pretty, pretty big church, and uh, they were really bragging that the local news media came in to see them speak in tongues. And I remember just saying to Becca, it's just so they can make fun of Sarah Palin. What are you doing? Does the book of Acts mean nothing? Not book of Acts, book of Corinthians mean anything to you? That if an unbeliever comes in, everybody's speaking in tongues, they're just going to be weirded out? And it was the most like ridiculous display. And that's what it was. It was a display. It was performative. That's not what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. It's power to be witnesses. And as Pentecostals, we should be known more for our passion to seek and to save that which was lost to the glory of God our Father than for, than for the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. We believe that God uses that for a goal, and the goal is salvations. Um, Last week, I made, I made this claim, and I'm, I'm, double down, I'm, I'm double, doubling down on it this week, which is the greatest thing to be called in the New Testament as a believer is not apostle, it is not prophet, it's not teacher, it's not pastor, it is witness. I was examining that this week and last week before I preached it as well. And the word for witness, like for instance in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you will be my witnesses, is martis. It is where we get the word martyr. The word martyr does not literally mean somebody who dies for their faith. It means a witness. It became synonymous for people who died for their Christian faith because to be an outward Christian in the first century meant death. So now even to this day, we'll talk about martyrs of other faiths and all these things. But really, the central point of it is being a witness. And if you read the book of Revelation, there is one group of humans who are honored more than all others. They are the martyrs. There is a theological term called progressive revelation. What that means is that when we, what we read about in Scripture is the journey of the story that God is revealing about himself to his people. If you are part of the people of God, that means you. <coughs> Excuse me. In the Old Testament, their faith was out of ignorance. They believed, but they did not know how God would fulfill many of his promises in the New Testament. We know that they've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For instance, the Passover lamb, who is killed in place of the firstborn in commemoration of the last plague of Egypt, we know that to be Christ. For Christ, when he was beginning his ministry, his cousin John the Baptist sees him coming from afar and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So for thousands of years, Jews are sacrificing this lamb for Passover, remembering that God passed over their houses because of the blood of the lamb. And here comes Christ, whose blood causes our sins to pass over us. And God took his first son to die in our place. That's the progressive revelation of God throughout the scriptures. But we have it all in the scripture itself. Um, in Christ, we see what John the Baptist calls the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's something in the scripture, especially when it comes to prophetic or many other things too, and called the law of double meaning, or as I like to call it, already the law of already not yet. I like to call it that because it really doesn't require much explanation. For instance, already we can experience healing on this earth, whether supernatural or natural. But all healing points to a greater final healing, and that's the resurrection. 
You know, a lot of pastors don't really preach on the resurrection. We'll preach on heaven. And I understand that because we want to make sure you know where you're going when you die. You're going to be in heaven. But the great hope of the early church was the bodily resurrection of the dead. And actually, in the book of Hebrews, when it talks about the elementary teachings, in there is the resurrection of the dead. And I'm kind of going off script here for a bit, um, because I was on one of my runs. I was running into Algona, and I'm, I'm praying, and um, I, I'm, I'm praying over the city. I'm praying over our church, and I, I just I felt just compelled by the Holy Spirit to pray this, Lord, I love you. I will feed your sheep. Bring your sheep into this church, and I will feed them. That's what the Lord said to Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. See, we try to make it all about us, right? We got to make them lambs. We got to bring them. It's like, he just asks us to feed a sheep. I'm like, God, bring in your sheep and I will feed your sheep. I will feed your sheep. The, the, so anyway, going back to this, um, I preach on resurrection because that is part of the milk of the word. In the Old Testament, they had types and shadows to look at that would be revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The feasts, the feasts they celebrated were pointing to Jesus we can go further at Passover, they would take a lamb, they would slay it, and they would perform ceremonies. This is to remember what happened in Egypt, but also is to point to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And then when we go back, when we go to the book of Revelation, at the end of all things, the lamb who was slain is worthy to receive the scroll. We can see how God takes these things and he brings them throughout all of salvation history with the Germans called Heilsgeschichte, which I'm sure I mispronounced. But Pentecost is the same. You have a ritual that pointed to an event that also points to something even better. It points to the Holy Spirit in the upper room, which will point to the new heavens and the new earth, in which none of the charismatic gifts will even be of use because we will now know him as we are fully known. The feasts of God that God had the people perform in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus that we read from last week, they were to observe and they correlated to the events of the book of Exodus, to remember so oftentimes in the scripture, it tells us to remember, remember this, remember that, you know, why? No, I forget, right? You forget, I forget, everybody forgets. We forget what God has done in the past. And we do these things to remember. So they had these feasts to remember the events of the book of Exodus, the Passover lamb. That was about the final curse, the, the death of the firstborn. The unleavened bread, which was the day right after Passover, was to remember the haste to leave Egypt, that they didn't have time to put leaven in the bread. During Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, it was about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. That's what Becca read for you. We didn't go over all of it just because I want to preach on those chapters someday, and I don't want you saying I already did, because I didn't. But I am referring to those because that's the first Pentecost, is the giving of the law at Mount, si at Mount Sinai. Um, it pointed towards the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It is a stirring account. This first Pentecost is very similar to the New Testament Pentecost. I'll be referring to the giving of the law as the first Pentecost, as that is what it was. And then the last Pente the, 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 the New Testament Pentecost as in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost is the Greek, which simply means 50th, um, because it is 50 days since the Passover. And the... Um, in the, uh, in the Hebrew, it's Shavat, and that's what they call it today, which means seventh, because it's the seventh week after the first day after Passover. Try to remember all that. It'll be on a test later. I'm just kidding. Um, but at the very first Passover, uh, at the very first, sorry, at the very first Pentecost, we have something so dramatic. God meets with his people. 
He meets with his people. He comes down upon Mount Sinai like fire and smoke. There's thunder. There's trumpets. I mean, there's just everything thrown in there. And and it's absolutely amazing. But my message for you today is that pales in comparison to what is happening inside of you right now if you're a believer. When we look at the we look at the events of the first Pentecost and the second Pentecost, there's a lot of similarities. Before I get into the body of my message, I want to talk about a Jewish oral tradition called the Midrash. Written before the time of Jesus Christ, the Midrash account um, is the account of the first Pentecost is very interesting. According to Pastor Thomas Lancaster of Beth Emmanuel Sabbath Fellowship in Wisconsin, the the Midrash make some very familiar descriptions about what happened on Mount Sinai. He says in there that what what it says in the Midrash is that when God spoke to his people through the cloud, through the fire, the Ten Commandments, when he spoke directly to his people. In the story in Exodus, he speaks directly to his people, the Ten Commandments. After that, the people tell him, tell Moses, speak to God for us. We can't endure it. But when God speaks to his people, this is the Midrash's account, is that they could see the voice of God through the Shekinah, the glory of God, the fire and the smoke. They could see it as fire. And this fire descended upon the people and broke apart and landed on each one of them. And they heard the commands of God. They heard the voice of God in the 70 known languages of the earth. That sounds somewhat familiar? I think that's amazing. I mean, think like, okay, I want to make something very clear here. We cannot prove everything that's recorded in the Midrash actually happened. It is not the scripture. We do not hold it to the standard of scripture at all. But here's what's amazing. This is in the disciples' minds at Pentecost because they're celebrating Pentecost. They grew up with the Midrash. They grew up with these accounts of God doing amazing, miraculous things. And for 400 years, Israel had no word from God. We call it the intertestamental period. A lot happened during that time. Israel rose and fell in that time when they tried to make a kingdom for themselves, and they didn't even so much get defeated. In fact, Josephus, a a scholar of that time, a historian of Jesus' time, sorry, would say that they lost their kingdom because two brothers couldn't get along. And that's what happens when we try to build our own kingdom. So for 400 years, silence, no prophets, no, no, no anything here. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes, and he is God in the flesh. And they are taught from Jesus Christ, and they learn so much, and they, they are, they're, they're saved through the ministry of Jesus Christ. They still don't get it by the time Acts chapter 1 even happens, because when he's about ready to go up to the Father, they say, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And you can just imagine Jesus going, you know, that, 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 that um, you know, um, Picard face palm, you know. Yeah, you can just, you just, you can almost hear it in the text in Acts chapter one. It's not for you to know the times nor the dates the Father is set in his own authority. Like basically, I know you don't get it, but you're going to get it. Don't worry. (laughs) But you will, but you will see power from on high and you will be my witnesses. They didn't get it, but they would be witnesses when they received this power from on high. 400 years silence. They have the ministry of Jesus. Jesus goes to be with the Father. He tells them to wait there and they pray for a number of days and the day of Pentecost happens and they they see what they only read about. Do you remember the prayer of Habakkuk in chapter three when he says, Lord, I've heard the report of you and oh, do I fear in my days, relive it, revive it. That's what they were living. All of a sudden they see, they see fire from heaven like those at Mount Sinai had seen at the first Pentecost and it comes to rest on them and now they speak in the tongues of the people around them and they declare the glories of God. Ooh, 
that's amazing. To quote Ric Flair, woo! As we look forward to Pentecost Sunday, while we are praying, where we'll be praying for the young and old, male and female, and everyone who wishes to receive it, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, let us remember that it's more than speaking in tongues. It is a fellowship of a glory that outpaces the astounding events of Mount Sinai in breadth, scope, and power. The similarities of the first and second Pentecost are exciting, but it's the differences this time that will matter for the glory of the new covenant is greater than the glory of the old covenant. In turns, it it makes us long for a fully realization of all the events of what we read about previously. Now, instead of, instead of, a, instead of a, a cloud around the mountains, they are a great cloud of witnesses. In, uh, in this story, in both stories of these two Pentecosts, I want to talk about the, the similarities, the differences, and the point in each one of these aspects. In, all three of the, in both of these account, encounters, you have the presence of God, you have a mediator, and you have the outcome, the purpose of what was going on. You have the presence of God, a mediator, and the outcome. Let's talk about the presence of God. The presence of God are in both. The presence of God can mean a few things. In one sense, God is always present. We say he is omnipresent. I mean, he is everywhere, all at once, at all times. There is no place that is hidden from his sight. There is no place that you can go that's away from his presence. King David would explore this in the Psalms. And he'd say, if I go to the very depth of the grave, he's waiting there. You know, I think probably one of the biggest mistakes we make is saying that hell is a Christless eternity. It's just a, it's an eternity without right relationship with Christ. It doesn't mean Christ isn't there. In fact, it's not the devil's fury being poured out in hell. It's the Lord's fury on sin being poured out in hell. There is no place that God is not. But then you also have instances like what we just read about in Exodus and in Acts, that is God's manifest presence. God's manifest presence. There's no place that is off limits to him. But in another sense, we have the manifest presence of God, like at Mount Sinai, like these tongues of fire. There are similarities between the two. Both Mount Sinai and the upper room have the manifest presence of God. In both events, this presence is represented as fire. In both of them, they're represented as fire. God comes down upon the mountain as fire, and smoke fills the entire mountain. Um, they were even told at the time to respect this so much that if anybody would go up to the mountain, they were to be stoned or arrowed to death. Is that the right verb? I don't know. Um, shot with arrows. Um, if they were to touch it. In fact, I, I just remembered how one of my teachers from college was just recently on Mount Sinai. So Lisa Millen, if you're watching this, next time I see you, you, you better duck because you're, we're told to stone the people who touched it. Um, that's, that's a joke. We don't have to do that now. Um, <laughs> The presence of God is a serious matter. They respected the presence of God in a way we can't even imagine today. What was holy was meant to be taken as sacred. Mount Sinai, we read in Exodus, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, that would be the shofar, so that all people in the camp trembled. You know, one of the things I pray before I come up here to preach to you, to God, is God, don't let me forget to tremble. So let me forget to tremble. I'm going to present to your people your word, not my word, not my agenda, your word. Do not let me forget to tremble. 
Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. Rabbis would come to call this appearance of God the Shekinah or the Shekinah glory of God. This is a word that does not appear in the Bible. It is, more of a, it is more of an understanding of what is happening here, for Shekinah comes from a Hebrew word that means he causes to dwell. He causes to dwell. I remember hearing so much about the Shekinah glory when I was younger, and people really longed for the Shekinah glory. And I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind about it, but in a second. But as I go to this, the understanding it means that he causes to dwell? You know, I've said this many times before, and many other passages have too. All of Scripture, all of the universe is, is, is just in this one sentence, and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. We look at the events of Mount Sinai, fire, smoke, lightning, trumpets. Woo! Amazing! He has caused to dwell in our hearts the Holy Spirit. Just fantastic. Just fantastic. So the, the Shekinah is what... The, the rabbis would end up calling this presence of God. The Midrash holds that the Shekinah came to rest on those who were there, and they heard the commands of God in the 70 known languages of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, the followers of Jesus in the upper room waited to receive the promise Jesus made in Acts chapter 1, that they would receive power when the third person of the Godhead comes upon him, them. The manifest presence is described like this, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and filled the entire house where they were sit, seated, sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. The second Pentecost in very many ways mirrors the first. But now they are, in a, but now they are, they are the cloud that only Moses would venture into. There are differences too. It is not a one-to-one -one comparison. In fact, this one is more glorious. There are, they, are not the same, they are not the same event. In those in the upper room were in a new covenant, and those at Mount Sinai were in an old covenant. Under the old covenant, they were told, once again, don't touch the mountain or you get to die. So, I mean, it's your choice, I guess. Um, anybody who touches the mountain, you can't even lay your hands on them. You have to, you have to stone them or, or arrow them. God gives them his word. God, God gives them the Ten Commandments. And then he, there's an invitation for them to hear more. And they beg Moses, don't let us hear more from God. I was, I was reading this even, even this morning. I was like, what was the difference? Okay, before, I mean, be, as they were hearing God's word, they were told not to touch them out, not to approach. And they had cleaned themselves. They became ceremonial, pure, ceremonially pure, but they still could not touch. They could hear the voice of God. They still could not touch. But now God is inviting them. What made, a, made the change? They heard the word of God. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, sanctify them, in your sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. They had cleaned the outside the best they could. And then God purified the inside by speaking to them. That is what the word of God does. It purifies us. It purifies us in the inner person. Moses, when, it, when he comes down from the mountain, his face will shine from the glory he witnesses, but that glory will fade. The manifest presence of God will show up again and again in the old covenant, sometimes in very similar ways. In fact, they are led by a cloud by day and a pillar by night. What's sad is that the people, really everyone, 
really everyone except for a very small few few could actually approach God in his presence. In fact, on a, on a regular basis, it would only be the high priest who could go into the very holy of holies where God was said to dwell and only once a year. And he did so with great fear and trepidation for if he messed up in any way, shape or form with ceremonial laws, he would be struck dead. Isaiah, the prophet, he sees the Lord and he says, I am undone, which means I'm coming apart at the seams. I've seen the face of the Lord. I'm surely going to die for I'm a man of unclean lips. and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. You know what God does there? He has one of his angels takes a live coal from the altar and touches it to his lips. Remember how I talked about how God sanctifies us through his word? And he has to purify our lips, our word, in order to do such a thing. Nothing impure is, is allowed in his presence. The prophet, once again, the prophet Elijah, he sees the Lord and he says he is undone, coming apart at the seams. But in the new covenant, Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 will compare the glory of the old covenant to the new covenant. That's why today's sermon is called Glory to Glory, because we are going from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says it is greater in the new covenant than the old covenant. What I think is really ridiculous is for new covenant believers to long for old covenant experiences. But you see that in a lot of churches, chasing the things of God instead of the, than God himself. To chase the things of the Old Testament because they don't really fully understand the glory of the new covenant is far and away greater than the glory of the old covenant. For God is now, his presence now dwells with us. God will not manifest the same way that he does in Acts chapter 2 in the rest of the New Testament with tongues of fire. He did in the Old Testament because they needed the reminders, but now in the New Testament, the tongues of fire, they are now within the person who who has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to talk a little bit later the different uses of being filled with the Spirit. But let me just talk about this. So this is the promise for every believer, not just those baptized in the Holy Spirit, but those who have bowed their knee to Jesus Christ. He has caused his spirit, the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, to dwell within our very being. You are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are now the Holy of Holies. What a burden that is when you really think about that. At any point in time, you know, you know back in the Old Testament, if even if you were the king and you tried to go into the Holy of Holies, God struck you with leprosy until you died. In the Old Testament, when they were moving around the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and one guy tried to steady it, God strikes the dude dead. Some people, they look inside the Ark, and he strikes 70 people dead. And now in the New Covenant, we are the Ark. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. At any point in time, we can go to the Holy of Holies, approach the throne of grace with confidence. Here's the point, just from the presence of God. We've barely gotten through the, into this sermon, but we are already seeing such wonders of God in our lives. Here's the point. Have you been so deep in prayer or in worship or in Bible reading or in all of these things that you swore you touched the face of God? I am being figurative, but I bet you don't need me to explain it to you. At salvation, he sent his spirit into your hearts, the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. What privilege we have. Under the old covenant, once per year, a representative of the people, that's what the priest was, would go into the presence of God 
And he would do so with fear and trepidation and apprehension because if he did not clean the outward self just right, it was very possible that God would strike him dead for profaning the holy place. But now you can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. You know, there's this book called Practicing the Presence of God. And I don't agree with everything in it, but just the title alone is worth the purchase of practicing the presence of God, daily diving in to our relationship with God, daily getting to a place in our spirit where we are connecting with God through our fellowship with the Spirit to the very heartbeat of God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. We should daily practice the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is everywhere, and if you are a believer, He lives in you. We often talk about inviting the Holy Spirit Actually, it's something you don't see in the scripture. In fact, if I could just do a a quick aside here, the pattern we see in the scripture is that we pray to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you actually don't have in the scripture anybody praying to the Holy Spirit. I want to get to just talk very briefly about submission within the Godhead. We have a hard time with submission here on this earth. We think if I submit to somebody, that makes me less than. You know, the Holy Spirit... He constantly submits to the Father and to the Son. He doesn't even promote himself. He promotes the Son. If we focus on the Holy Spirit at the expense of the Son, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that in your own life? So you're like, okay, you're focusing, you're focusing on me instead of Jim, my boss. This is terrible. We need, to, we need to straighten this out. But that's the Holy Spirit's attitude. Is he promotes the Son. He makes us love the Son more. That is the presence of God. The point is that we, are, that we have the presence of God with us now. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, excuse me. The second one is a mediator. People in the Old Testament came to respect the presence of God in a way we don't understand. When they didn't, when they tried to steady the ark, enter the temple, um, when they were not authorized, when they tried to look inside the ark, They got tumors, leprosy, and died. The presence of God was seen as a frayed wire. We have some, I know we have a last master electrician here. If you see a frayed wire, you don't grab it with your bare hand, especially if it's a live wire. You want to make sure it's off. Makes me think of tool time, you know, like uh, Tim the Tool Man Taylor. He always forgot that part, and he'd get like the shock of his life to shut off the power because you can't touch a live wire with just your bare hands. You need something between your hand and it. You need a mediator because there's too much power to hold on to with your bare hand. In the Old Testament, they understood the presence of God to be the same way. In fact, when they were hearing the voice of God, when God allowed them to, they still didn't want to because they knew they couldn't endure. Unholy humankind cannot stand the presence of a holy God. He, is, he, has, been, he, has, been, he has been described in, in the Bible as living in an unapproachable light. So you need somebody to mediate between you. You need an insulator, someone to be in the middle. For the verses we read in Exodus, that was Moses. For most of the Old Testament, it was a priest. The, in, in verse 21 of verse 20 of chapter 20, they beg Moses to speak for them, to be their mediator. There, there are mediator, mediators in both Pentecosts. Um, let me talk about the similarities. In the Old Testament, the first Pentecost, the people elect Moses to be their mediator. Elect, that's a, that's a generous word. They beg him. I mean, he doesn't, 
he wants them to enjoy. He wants them to be in the presence as well. But they're like, no, you speak for us. And Becca read part of that today. During the first Pentecost, they elect Moses to be their mediator. He would go into the presence of God alone. It's not something he wanted, but he desired fellowship with God more than fellowship with others. And he would, and he would tell them what God would say further. This is why the law is called the law of Moses. It could have been called the law of Israel. But Moses is the one who ventured into the cloud. God would institute the priesthood to mediate between the people and God. In this, we see God's progressive revelation because he wanted Israel to be a kingdom of priests. And the New Testament, in Peter's epistle, the church is called a priesthood of all believers. In the New Testament, so where is the mediator in the upper room? Acts chapter 2, I said there was a mediator in both. Doesn't, doesn't everybody receive the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues as the Spirit enables them? Yes. But there's still a mediator. There's still a priest. Can't you see him? No. That's okay, because he, would, he had already gone to the Father, and he is there, even currently, making mediation intercession for you and I. Amen. That is how we connect with God in a personal way today, is because of the constant mediation of our last priest, Jesus Christ. He is the final mediator between God and man. He constantly goes to the Father to make an intercession for his brothers and sisters, and he is still there doing that for you and me today. Jesus is the final mediator between God and man. He is why we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. It is the same Holy Spirit in both Pentecosts. In both the Old Testament and the New, it's the same Holy Spirit. And his job, his passion is the same, to bring glory to the Son and to the Father. He does not promote himself. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we turn our affections towards him and neglect Christ. For he will not, this is words of Christ himself, for he will not speak of his own, speaking of the Holy Spirit. But he will speak what he hears, and he will declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me. If you see a ministry that glorifies the Holy Spirit, that is not a, spirit, that is not a ministry that is working by the Spirit. Because the Spirit's heart is to glorify the Son. We talk a lot about grieving the Holy Spirit. We want to make sure we're not grieving the Holy Spirit. I think, unfortunately, a lot of church services, what that means, like you break the flow of the excitement of what's going on. That's not grieving the Holy Spirit. That's grieving you. Sometimes, like, things like with the worship or whatever, and I'll say, hey, if, I'm, if you're up here, I want you playing. If you don't play, it trips me up. That's not grieving the Holy Spirit. That's grieving me. It's not a big deal. Grieving the Holy Spirit, that happens when you resist the Holy Spirit's work in your life, so, for instance, you're like, I wonder why I'm praying. I never feel like I'm connecting with God. Are you holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness? The Bible says a, per, a man who doesn't forgive his wife, God won't listen to his prayers. Now, I do love that about God. God isn't like how we are a lot of times. There's an issue between us. And we don't really talk about it. We, we, we work around it. Then all of a sudden, like there's a small problem that comes up and we blow up at like our family member or somebody. God is like, we come to God and we're like, God, uh, I want you to do this. And God's like, you remember how you're not forgiving your brother? Why don't you go back to forgive your brother? Then you can come back up here. God has done that so many times in my life. That's one of the ways we grieve the Holy Spirit. Another way we grieve the Holy Spirit is by turning him into an it. By turning him into an it. We do that by treating him like he's the force from Star Wars. 
He's just a means to an end of something I want to do. No, he leads me to the greatest end possible, which is fellowship with Jesus Christ and God the Father. The Spirit reveals to me the Father, and he glorifies the Son. It's one of the things, you know, as we pray, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit to the Father through the Son, even though praying to the Son is in the Scripture, and it's just fine to pray to Jesus, to the Father. We, just, we don't really see people praying to the Holy Spirit. And I do think that that grieves if we, if we promote the Holy Spirit at expense of the Son, because the Holy Spirit is promoting the Son. The differences. The differences in mediators between these two events answers this question. Why doesn't the Holy Spirit appear the way he does in Acts chapter 2 for the rest of the Bible? Because he is inside those believers. He guides them into all truth, and he takes from Christ and gives it to them, and they are now dynamos of witnessing in the areas that they are in. Peter the apostle, who when Jesus is being crucified, says, I don't know the guy, says it three times, third time he cusses, he says, I don't know the man, is now preaching a world-class sermon in which 3,000 people come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. That's not Peter the fisherman. He causes us to love Jesus more, to become more like Christ through the fruit of the Holy Spirit that leads to eternal life. He builds up Christ's church through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know what's amazing about the Holy Spirit in our life and the fruit of the Holy Spirit? It was what's denied to Adam and Eve in the garden. They were, they were told not to eat from the tree of life. In the New Testament, we eat from the tree of life as we allow the Holy Spirit to produce fruit in keeping with repentance that lead to eternal life. What's the point? What's the point of our mediator? What should we take from Christ being our mediator? Well, look, look at Acts and Peter. He preaches a message that is unlike anything he was capable of before. Look at Paul, who goes from proud to humble. Look at the description of believers throughout the rest of the Bible. They are said to you were this way, now you're this way. And that is the same for you. You have a past, I have a past, everybody has a past. That's what you were, that's not who you are. Because who you are is what God is making you into. Have you ever heard you can't step into the same river twice? It's because you step into it once, and by the time you step into it again, it's changed. You are not what you once were. You are becoming something altogether new and glorious to God the Father. You have the Holy Spirit, the presence of God inside of you. My third point today is the outcome. The outcome. God never does something just to do it. He has a purpose in everything. Even the worst of things God will use for his good. Joseph in the Old Testament, when he's revealing himself to his brothers... And actually, you know, it's after that when they think that after our dad dies, now he's really going to give it to us. Now he's really going to avenge himself on us. And he tells, he tells him, am I in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant it for the good. Even something as terrible and heinous as that, but look at the cross itself. Men meant it for the most evil act of all of human history to crucify the, the Lord of glory. But God means it for the good, for the saving of all who would come to him. Oh. That is what God constantly does in our life. The outcome of both Pentecost changes the universe by making us more in line with the heartbeat of God. Here are the similarities. The outcome of the law and the spirit doesn't have a lot of similarities, but they do have a few. The law is given after their freedom. It's not a condition of their freedom. 
They did not have to keep the law, and then God would free them from Egypt. God freed them from Egypt, and now that they are free, God gives them the law to instruct how a people can live, how a, people can, how a free people can live according to God's statutes. They reject God's law, and they, are, and they, they end up back in slavery. The Spirit is not a condition for salvation, but it is something that guides the free people of God, not free from a physical tyrant, but free from the inner tyrant of our fleshly nature. The differences in the Old Covenant. This is the giving of the law. There's so much to say about the law that I'm going, um, that I'm not going to get into today. In fact, um, you know, um, uh, Josh said that I was given free reign to do a three-hour sermon today, so maybe I will. All right, let's start in uh, now. <laughs> But you know what the law does? It tells us how to be holy. It tells us how to be righteous. It tells us how to be innocent. And it also tells us that we are miserable failures, failures in all three. It also tells us what happens when we fall short of the law. That's death. Paul calls the law the ministry of condemnation. In the New Testament, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for the building up of the church. It is the power to witness that even though, even though you can't be clean by yourself, there is one who can make you clean. He kept the law that you couldn't. Now by faith and repentance, his record can be credited to you. Finally, in this part, we're about talking about the differences. Let's talk about life and death. In Exodus chapter 32, 28, you know what happens on the day the law is given? 3,000 men die. The day the law is given, 3,000 men die. Keep that in your head. Because you know what happens the day the Spirit is given? 3,000 men get saved. 3,000 people get saved, I should say. 3,000 people get saved. Because the, the letter of the law brings death, but the spirit of the law brought life. Amen. So the point. The point of the outcome of Pentecost is to be filled with the manifest presence of God because of the mediation of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Being filled with the Spirit is somewhat confusing for us. When I say us, I mean us as American Christians, not for them who it was written to. It's because of the way we translate their word for... It's three different words for fill that we translate as filled with the Spirit. So we get awfully confused in this. So there's three different ways the Scripture use, uses the word filled with the Spirit. And we, we get them convoluted. That's why some people... Get, fall into the error of saying that you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to be saved, or that's an evidence that you are saved is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, not at all. Or we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, and sometimes we get confused, because we have one sense in which the Scripture talks about the indwelling of the Spirit, and that is for all believers, whether you're baptized in the Holy Spirit or not. You have the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Son, who cries out, Abba, Father, is in your heart. And that is not something that you, you lose every week, you gain every week, or, you know, if you're feeling down, you've lost it, now you've got to get it back. It is, it is a one-time infilling of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit into your life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's that salvation, that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which means that he lives inside of us. But this is not Acts chapter 2, but when Christ, this is when Christ breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit in, in the Gospels. Let me talk about the other two, two types of filling with the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, um, the word for filling is pleru, pleru, which conveys the idea of growth to maturity. It's being modeled, molded by the Word of God. 
If we compare Ephesians chapter 5 to Colossians 3.16, we see that being filled with the Spirit is the same as let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That is from a, a man named Norton um, from Baptist, uh, from Austin Theological Seminary. The command in Ephesians is, is in the present tense. This means that being filled with the Spirit is an ongoing process. So in this regard, of being in, by being sanctified by the Lord, being filled with the Spirit, so we can continually receive from God, receive from the Spirit, this is a thing that we can be filled and filled again. So we can be filled and filled again with the Holy Spirit. In fact, on the 5th, I hope many of you are going to come up that day to be refilled with the Holy Spirit in this regard, to continually be molded in by the Word of God, that the Word of God would dwell in you richly, and that the Holy Spirit would come upon you again and build you up. Part of the spiritual gifts are for building up of the inner person, for the individual. That is one type of being filled with the Spirit. Another type is from Acts chapter 2, verse 4, what we read today. Um, the word for this, and I'm going to horribly pronounce it, but it's uh, um, plimplumi, which is, which is in the tense, in which, it, which is in the singular tense, a single event. This word implies of what Jesus said, that they will be empowered to be witnesses. So we understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event that God empowers us to be witnesses, and that we are also refilled as we go on, as we continue to mature as believers. Today, since the Spirit indwells us as believers, we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit in our respective ministries. So the Holy Spirit is doing two major things for us. He is empowering us and he is maturing us. We can be filled and filled again. I hope that helps a lot when it comes to this because it's probably one of the most confusing things for us as English speakers because we use it as synonyms and it's not really synonyms because we're talking about different acts of the Holy Spirit in our life. Worship team, would you come up at this time? In closing, in closing, as we, as we continue to prepare ourselves, <laughs> excuse me, for Baptism Sunday, I mean, for, sorry, for Pentecost Sunday, um, very much like the first Pentecost, there's a period of time where we get to prepare ourselves, like the disciples in the upper room to purify ourselves, to pray for what will happen on, Baptist, on, on Pentecost Sunday. As we are doing that, this, is, this week is the excitement that from the Spirit we gain life, though from the law we gain death. In the Spirit, the law drives us to Christ. And now the life we live by the Spirit, we live by the, by the Son of God. Let me read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have. I said before, the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament is nothing compared to the glory that's inside of you right now. And you can touch it at any point in time. You can go to the Holy of Holies. 
By the power of the Holy Spirit, he will guide you to the Father through the Son. And that's fantastic. And sometimes there are people, they will travel all around the world to go to revival after revival after revival, and they will long for the things that they read about in the Old Testament, but you have a better glory today. And you can go even, even later this afternoon, right now, as we sing, as we pray, and you can venture into the very holy of holies. Can you imagine what it was like for that high, great high priest once a year? The people are singing their songs. The other priests are in the holy place. And you are venturing in. They have a rope tied around your leg because if you messed up, you won't survive the experience because sinful man cannot survive against a holy God. And you go in there and you've brought the blood of the lamb and you are to sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And you are astounded. No wonder, you know, David had all the pleasures of this earth, but he says, the one thing I ask for, the one thing I would seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is how amazing the presence of God is. It's what the ancients long to look into. It's what angels long to look into. But that is our heritage as believers. Your privilege as a New Testament believer is the presence of God lives in you. That your mediator constantly makes sacrifice for you for the shedding of his own blood and that you are now filled with the Spirit. So as we sing this final song, this is our chance to interact with the message. I interact to touch the very face of God. Here's Here's something for us to pray about this week. How often do you speak in tongues as your personal prayer language? And then also, how often do you touch the throne of grace with confidence? Is it something that has fallen into disrepair, like the temple and the altar of God in the Old Testament when they started seeking after other gods? Do you need to clean it up? Do you need to have a revival even in your own life? I believe that God wants to do revival here. And when I say revival, I don't mean just weird stuff happening. I mean people getting saved. I mean, I read Acts chapter 2, and I'm, I'm like, Habakkuk, I've heard the report of you. Do it in my day. Do it in my day. Save 3,000 and bring them into your houses here in Algona. In all the, all the towns around us, bring them in. And Lord, raise up faithful ministers who will feed your sheep. Would you please stand and sing as we sing our final song?